Good morning, church. So I, I've played around with different introductions to this passage, um, some that were funny, some that were really interesting, some that had movie references, and all of them I've scrapped, I scrapped, and uh, my intro, all of them scrapped because the topic of this morning's text is too weighty for me to try to be clever. And, and so I'm going to have a very awkward, kind of intense opening, and that's this. Do you know that you have an enemy? And if you're a visitor, you're like, whoa, man, this preacher is just like really going hard at it real quickly. Give me something funny. Give me something interesting. But the topic this morning is one where if we understand this passage this morning, it can absolutely change your life forever. I'm so jealous for all of us to get this this morning. So that's the best I got. That, that's my creative intro to hook you in. Do you have an enemy? Now, what is an enemy? Well, I just looked up a quick definition on uh, dictionary.com, and this is what an enemy is. Uh, A person who feels hatred for or fosters harmful designs against or engages in antagonistic activities against another, an adversary or opponent. Now, we may have political enemies or you may have an enemy against your favorite sports team, but most of us don't have capital E enemies, people who their very being is to seek your harm. They're all about to destroy you, to hurt you. And without trying to be dramatic or manipulative, I just want to be honest with you very truthfully. Every one of us here has a capital E enemy right now. And this enemy has an entire army of highly skilled servants who do not sleep, and their entire goal is to destroy you. But not just physically. See, there's a greater death than just physical death. They want to destroy your heart. They want to destroy your life, your joy. The stakes are much higher than just merely living or dying. We get a glimpse of this in John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus is speaking. talks about the thief, which is also known as Satan. What does the thief do? The thief comes to only do what three things? Steal, kill, and destroy. But what does Jesus bring? He wants to bring abundant life. That's why he's come, to give us life, abundant life. And on top of just knowing that you have an enemy, that implies that you're in a war. A lot of us don't realize we're in a war. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. Put on God's armor. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Though that's what we kind of often think, right? Your spouse is your enemy, or that politician is your enemy, or that person at work is your enemy. But actually, you're not fighting against them. That's not your enemy, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We are all in a war. But what if you could know exactly what your enemy would do? Wouldn't that be helpful? Wouldn't it be such an advantage if before the enemy even struck, you knew exactly what he would do, his strategy? In fact, the apostle Paul says that could be true for every Christian. 2 Corinthians 2.11. Skipping some context, but in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So apparently, Christians are able to be aware of Satan's schemes in such a way that he cannot outwit us. And yet my great burden for the church, my great burden for you, beloved, is that many of us 
are outwit over and over again because you're ignorant of the schemes of Satan. You have no idea, and Satan is playing us like a fiddle, y'all. Over and over again, we do not learn, and we fall right back into the same traps over and over again. And we're left disoriented, full of shame, confused, when God has given us the strategies of Satan right here. And if you try to fight the evil one with your own wisdom, let me just tell you, he will outwit you 100% of the time. He is smarter than you. He's been alive longer than you. He's been studying humanity before you were born, before anyone you ever have heard of has been born. He's been studying and fine-tuning his strategies. But the good news is this, is that though his strategies have probably advanced and gotten more clever, the base heart of every one of his attacks are exactly the same as we will find in Genesis chapter 3. He does the same thing today than he did then. So this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. All of God's word is inspired. All of God's word is important. But there are certain chapters that have far-reaching implications to your life. And if you get this chapter, you get so many things for free. If you don't understand chapter three, your Christian life is going to be a shipwreck. You got to get chapter three. Why is the world the way it is? Chapter three. Got to get chapter three. So I I have an honor to walk with you through chapter three. And so let's get into the strategies, the playbook of Satan. Verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Yahweh God had made. Remember, Lord God, cap, all caps, Lord, Yahweh, his covenantal name, his intimate name for his people that reveals all of his glorious attributes. It's only for his people. God had made. He said to the women, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, who's this serpent? If you have been following along with the narrative in Genesis chapter one, all the way to this point, he just comes out of nowhere. Who is he? Well, gratefully, we have a little bit more background than Moses' original context. According to Revelation 12.9, if you're taking notes, this serpent is also Satan and called the, de- the, the deceiver of the world. And also look briefly at John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to a bunch of Jews who are rejecting him. Those who actually don't want to seek truth, they act like they want to know truth, but they don't. And this is what he says. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character. Why? Because he is a liar and the father of lies. We learn a lot about Satan here. The devil, Satan, the deceiver, the accuser, the brethren, lots of different names, the dragon throughout scripture. But the devil is a murderer. He hates truth because there's no truth in him. And lying is at the core of his being because he's the father of lies. When he speaks, he speaks his fluent language, and that fluent language is lying, deceit. So keep this in mind. Satan's primary weapon against humanity is deception. Deception. Now let's go back to our passage again. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. Okay, is this a snake or is it Satan? Or are all snakes Satan, okay? (laughs) Snakes aren't bad in themselves. Remember, God created everything. He said it was good. So if you're a pet owner, 
of a snake. I think you're, you're okay, I think. <laughs> Martin Luther explained it this way. The devil was permitted to enter beasts as he here entered the serpent. Just like when Satan was speaking to Peter, when Peter was speaking nonsense about Jesus going to the cross, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Something similar may be happening. It's actually a beast of the field that God had made, an actual serpent, but Satan is influencing, working through. We don't actually know, and we have to be content with the text not telling us specifically. But back to the main point, this passage starts off by saying the serpent is crafty. So then if you understand that he's crafty, it helps you see through that lens of this whole text. Everything that the serpent is going to do from here on out is coming through a lens of crafty deceit. Remember, what did I say is Satan's primary weapon against us? Deception, deception. Okay, so he's going to use deception to do two things primarily. He's going to twist God's character and twist God's word. He's going to use this deception to twist God's character and God's word. And if he does that successfully, successfully, he wins every time. Easy. See this first question. Satan says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Believe it or not, this is actually the first recorded question in all of the Bible. First question in the Bible is this from Satan. Questions aren't always bad, but this one sure was. What is he doing here? Did God actually say is not a genuine, humble question. See, the Bible is not afraid of your questions. In fact, it welcomes your questions from a place of humility. Read the Psalms. But this is a mocking question. Imagine, okay, there have been a time or two I've said something insensitive to my wife, Joanna, okay? And imagine she's talking to her friends, not gossiping though, but talking to her friends about this insensitive thing that I've said years ago, never, never now. <laughs> and her friends say, he didn't say that, did he? Sam said that? <sighs> Pastor Sam. They're not questioning if, if I actually said those words. They're, they are in expressing outrageous disbelief that I could say such words. Can you really believe God would say that? It's kind of like a disgruntled employee complaining, all of us have probably done that, about a boss saying, can you believe what the boss has done this time? Anyone done that before? Maybe this week? See, the the serpent is coming alongside Eve, kind of like an ally, a friend. I'm for you, but wow, that, that boss, God, he said that, can you believe it? I'm for you, Eve. You and I, we're creatures, we're together in this against this mean, meanie God. But know what actually God said. Bethany just read it, Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord, Yahweh God, commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But what does Satan say? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see what he's doing here? Do you see that? Are you following? Satan takes the positive invitation that God generously bestows upon Adam and Eve to enjoy and partake of every tree of the garden. But the way Satan frames it is he frames it in a way to cast doubt on the goodness of God. God is mean. He's stingy. Oh, yeah. How could he? 
This entire time as we've been reading Genesis, there has been an emphasis of God's bountiful provision with just one single bitty limitation. But Satan reframes it completely to make it about limits. Restriction, not bounty, not generosity. God is a killjoy. He delights in making you unhappy. He's not for you. God has given them this garden and said, yes, 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 yes. Millions of yeses. One no. And Satan's like, you see that no? God is so ungenerous. He's so stingy. He's not for you. I'm for you, Eve. You and me are alike. See, one of the primary ways that Satan will deceive us about the character of God is in the heart of God is that he wants to question the goodness of God. And he attempts to do that to you and me every day. If he can get us to question the heart of God, then it leads us to distrusting God. And if he can get us to distrust God, it will lead us to reject God. But he doesn't start off that way with Eve. He doesn't just go up straight and be like, Eve, let's, you and me, let's start a rebellion here. No, he, he's crafty. He starts off and tempts her with suspicion towards God's heart. Note also, according to our text, what does the serpent refer God to as? He just says God. Elohim the generic creator word of God that can even be used for non-like gods of other nations. And yet throughout the chapter, up to this point, what name has been highlighted? Yahweh Elohim, God's personal name for his people that brings and marries together both authority, he's Elohim, he's the creator, he's the authority, he has boundaries, he's worthy of our praise and obedience, and yet Yahweh, he's my Lover, he's my father, he's intimate, he loves us. It brings both realities together. And what does Satan try to do? He tries to take them apart. No, he's just Elohim. He's just the authority. He's stripping the personal name out of God and just using generic and impersonal titles. And this is one of the strategies of Satan. He wants to depersonalize God for us, strip us of relationship, make it all about transaction and all about he's this boss and we are his abused employees. But the Bible doesn't do that. It brings both intimacy and authority together. And Satan's gonna try to help us put those apart. Do, do you relate with God like that, church? Both deeply intimate like a child just contently sitting on the lap of his daddy and yet an almighty creator worthy of all our worship and obedience. And throughout the church, his, throughout church history, when there's errors in the church, it's because we pick one or the other. Ominously, Eve follows him and joins in his use of language of just calling God, God, and forgetting Yahweh. Let's look at verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. If you look closely, Eve starts off by defending God, but then she starts to go along with him. She corrects the serpent by saying, yeah, you can eat, you can eat from any of the trees in the garden. But she makes at least four errors I want to highlight quickly. She drops the word every from her statement. Do you see that? 
She doesn't say every fruit tree. She just says you can eat of trees. <laughs> she simply says you can eat of fruit trees in the garden. The word every is important because it signifies God's generosity, his bounty, his love. You know what Eve should have said? She should have said this. Actually, God has generously given us millions of trees, not just that one. Thank you very much. Number two error she made, she refers to the location of the tree instead of its significance. Throughout the text, it's talked about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She doesn't mention it's by its significant name. She just talks about it's in the midst of the garden. Number three, she also adds to God's word. There was never a point where God said, you can't touch the tree. Maybe Adam changed it when he told her about it, or maybe Eve changed it. Someone added to God's word. It's possible that the the way that Satan is trying to tempt her and to cause her to be suspicious of God is working on Eve. Now she's making things sound harsher than it is. I heard one illustration like this. A father says to his young daughter, you and your friend Katie have been too noisy, so Katie has to go home. Then the daughter runs to her mother crying, Daddy says I can't ever have Katie over again. We've all done that, right? We add to prohibitions to make it sound worse than it is to try to get the other person on our side. Now, some people will say, well, no, no, no. we don't know that Eve's adding to this. Maybe, maybe God said it another time. We just don't know. But listen, who's writing Genesis? Moses. Moses knows the law. He understands that adding to God's word is a big deal. Look at Deuteronomy 4.2. Would you read this out loud? Because I'm losing my voice and I'm only like a few minutes in this sermon. All right. You shall not add. Moses understands the grave danger of tampering with God's word. So he wouldn't just slip this language unintentionally. Some have argued that Eve is the first Pharisee, adding to God's word, adding prohibit, prohibit, how do I say that word right now? Thank you, prohibitions against God's word. But what is clear is that one of the greatest dangers that all of us can fall into is a temptation to change God's word, either by omission or by adding or twisting. Let's talk about the fourth and final mistake here. She's having a conversation with the serpent. That's the fourth mistake. She ought to have turned the serpent away. I am not having this conversation. Don't you dare speak about my God in such suspicious ways. You dare question the heart and word of Yahweh Elohim. This conversation is over. See, the longer you entertain propaganda, the more propaganda seems reasonable. See, if you're tempted with an idea that you know is wrong and you start to turn it over your head and consider it and, and revisit it, maybe there's more to it or, I mean, you know, is it that bad? And eventually, don't be surprised if you're lulled to sleep and all of a sudden one day you consider it good, that which you thought was evil just a few days before. See, the best defense against serpent's attack is to shut it down before it goes anywhere. Now, I want to just be real honest with you. Weeks that I have to preach God's word to you, I am tempted more than other weeks. I'm tempted with laziness, distraction, and lust. In this last week, 
I heard the serpent whisper and bring an image to my mind of a, a show I watched years ago that had lustful scenes in it, promising me joy and life and relief because I feel a tremendous um, pressure and stress before I preach this word because I'm trying to speak and tell you what God actually says and not just tell you what I think. That pressure is overwhelming sometimes. And if I'm not going to Jesus with that, I want to go to my flesh for comfort and retreat. And so the enemy was whispering, Sam, get retreat. Go back to those images. And because of this passage, you know what I did? I said, no, that's not me anymore. Conversation over. And the power just left from that temptation because I didn't give it a foothold. I didn't give it a conversation. I didn't give it a hearing. I'm not even having this conversation, Satan. I encourage you to win the fight by not even letting the fight happen. Just walk away. Don't even entertain it. Shut it down before it goes anywhere. Don't take another look, another glance. End it. Verse four. But the serpent said to the women, you will not surely die. Remember, Satan's number one weapon against us is what? Deception. Now that he's got us questioning her character, God's character, adding to his word probably, Satan elevates his deception with flat-out denial of God's word. He accuses God of lying, which is ironic because he is the what? Father of lies. The father of lies is trying to convince Eve that God is lying and deceiving her. What truth does Satan lie about? What's this doctrine? I'm going to share a quote from you, with you from D.A. Carson, the scholar. The first doctrine to be denied, according to the Bible, is the doctrine of judgment. In many disputes about God and religion, this pattern often repeats itself. Because if you can get rid of that one teaching, then rebellion has no adverse consequences. And so you are free to do anything. Are you believing that lie this morning, church? There's no consequences to your sin if you want to combat these lies, you have to trust God's heart and character. And if you want to be able to trust God's heart and his word and his character, you got to know God's word. You got to know this word better than you know anyone or anything, church. If you want to know what the counterfeit is being thrown and shoved down your throat every day from media and from our flesh and from this world and all around us, you got to know what the truth says so you can distinguish what is the lie. But if you don't know God's word, if you are just a second or just depending on me or other pastors or other people or people on TV or your little devotional that you buy from Christian bookstore to satisfy you and to equip you enough to fight God, fight this enemy, you're done for. Know God's word, church. Know God's word. My job as one of the pastors is to help equip you to know God's word, not for you to depend on me so I can be the source of God's word. Amen? Or oh me, oh me. Let's look at verse five. The serpent goes further. He gives Eve reasons why God is lying to them. Verse five, this is why God's lying. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, why is God lying to you about this fruit? Because God doesn't want you to be like him. He's afraid of you. He's jealous of you. He's trying to cramp your style. He's stingy. He's self-conscious. He's trying to keep others down so, he, so others don't shine. God is limiting your full human potential. Are any of you believing that lie this morning? 
that God isn't generous towards you, holding back on you, keeping you down, fully restricting you from your freedoms and your true joys. My pray, prayer is that all of us who know God's heart towards us, if we could only grasp the, his generous, full, gracious heart towards us, oh, what lives would we live? What lies would be extinguished right away? 1 Corinthians 2.9 has this beautiful line. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, do you know what he has prepared for you, church? Do you know how generous and how full his heart and tender it is towards you? See, the serpent is actually telling a half-truth. If you want to be good at deception, you need to sprinkle in truth there. It is true their eyes will be open. And in some sense, they will know good and evil like they never have before. But what he isn't telling them is that they will learn evil by partaking in evil. See, God knows evil from the outside. They will know evil from the inside. And their act of evil will unleash death and decay into this world. See, the serpent only spoke about what they would gain and nothing about what they would lose. And he does that same thing to us all the time. He promises the world, but under delivers, it gives us nothing but shame and brokenness. Have you ever wondered why Adam and Eve enjoying this fruit is such a big deal? Maybe you've read it before, you've thought about it, you're like, man, God is like pretty uppity about this, right? Like, what does he have to do with fruit? Like, why is he so, you know, crazy about it? Well, let's look at the next section of this passage. And we understand the heart of the sin here. It's not about the fruit, but it's about the heart under the sin. Satan says, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. See, this is the very heart of the problem. It's not merely that they're breaking the insy-bincy rule what is at stake here is something more devious, more dark. It's a revolution. It's trying to de-God God. It's trying to be your own God. A desire to be your own authority, to call your own shot, to do whatever you want. In fact, this is the same temptation, same playbook Satan used on us every day. Not to worship Satan, but to simply to worship self. What's the first commandment in the Satanic Bible? Do what thou wilt. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want, and Satan wins. He wins if we worship ourselves by doing whatever we see fit. See, this is the heart of every sin in the world, every sin that I've committed, whether it's the heart of the sweet atheist grandma to the evil dictator. They may manifest very differently on the outward, but the inner heart is the same, a desire to be self-autonomous, rule self. If you're a careful reader, remember, God has already made mankind like him. Remember Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us man, make man in our own image after our likeness. God is already sharing his work with them, co-rulers co with him, vice regents with them, co-creators and cultivators. And they have a relationship, an intimate relationship with him like nobody else does. And yet, they want more than what God has already given them. 
Let's look at the next passage to understand what is this more? What's wrong with them wanting knowledge of good and evil, right? Has any of you guys wondered, like, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with this wisdom? Verse six. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. For the last few chapters, who was the person who saw things as good? Who? God. He created, and then God saw that it was good. And then God saw that it was good, that God saw that that was good. And now the first time in all of creation, it's not God who's seeing things as good, but Eve. Why is that significant? This language here is intentional. Eve is now deciding for herself what she calls good. What is good in her eyes? See, the problem is not growing in wisdom. We ought to know wisdom. Read Proverbs every day before you go to sleep. Stop being a fool. Read Proverbs. Know wisdom. God wants us to grow in wisdom and knowledge. But the problem is us becoming our own authority to dictate what is good and evil. That's in our culture right now. Our culture now has a corner of what is good and evil. They tell us what is true. God said that eating from this tree is wrong and it will kill you. Eve is deciding it is actually good and God is wrong. So instead of trusting and delighting and resting in the wisdom of, their lo- of her loving creator, Eve is deciding for herself what would be best for her. She knows what's best for her. I got this. I know best for myself. I'm two days old. I don't know how old Eve is. It doesn't matter that she wants a good thing. She wants a good thing. Knowledge, wisdom is a good thing. But God said, not that way. And humanity snaps back and cries out, my way, my way. I know how to get what I want. I know what I need. Is that you this morning, church? Do you want good things, but it's in your own way? And thus you're fighting against God. You know better than God. You're wise in your own sight. You know what you want and what you need and what's best for you. See, in this moment, Eve is following her feelings and her impressions rather than God's instructions. Notice these phrases. She saw and delight in the eyes and desirable, so she took the fruit and ate. See, she lets her desires, her senses lead her over God's word. Feelings become God over God. Now, we've been spending a long time talking about Eve, but what about Adam? Look back at verse 6 with me. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. With her. And if you look in the original Hebrew, it's often plural throughout this whole passage, not just speaking to Eve. So what was Adam doing while the serpent is tempting his wife? What was he doing? Nothing. What was he doing? Nothing. He was doing nothing. Remember, he was commanded not just to cultivate the garden, but to keep it, to guard it. Part of cultivating and uh, having a flourishing garden is not just, just tending it. It's also keeping out the weeds, keeping out the critters, killing the squirrels. Don't get, okay. <laughs> Adam is neglecting his duty. What should he have done? What should have Adam done? Well, he should have stood up in between his wife and the serpent. He should have stood right in, in between. Don't you dare talk to my wife. Should have, hey, let's go, Eve. We're not having this conversation with talking serpent. That's weird. 
right? <laughs> or he should have grabbed the biggest stick he could find and just crushed the head of the serpent. I'm keeping you out of this garden. You will keep this garden from flourishing. You must go. See, Adam's first sin, I don't believe, was eating of the fruit, but actual, actually, I believe, I believe his first sin was passivity. Passivity. Neglecting to guard the garden and his beloved wife. A lot of people rag on Eve. <laughs> oh, yeah, Eve. And, but if you read 1 Timothy 4, two, two, sorry, 1 Timothy 2.14, the Apostle Paul actually makes the point that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. So what does that mean? It means that Adam willfully rebelled against God. So as much as we rag on Eve, Adam was the one who willfully disobeyed and rebelled against God. Both are accountable towards God. We're going to see that later on in this chapter. But there is a way that God holds Adam uniquely responsible for this whole ordeal. I don't want to overly read into it because I know right now we're studying that a lot as a church, trying to think about what, what is true manhood and womanhood look like according to the, the Bible and not culture. But there's something to be said there. There's something to be said in the very beginning, and if you read on the chapter, how God holds Adam uniquely responsible in a way that he does not hold Eve, though she is responsible as well. And listen, all right, I got to drink some water before I get in this section, okay, because this is going to be too much. Listen, passivity for men, let me talk, let me talk to the men here. I just want to remind you, just because I'm talking to the men doesn't mean that the women aren't important or that you aren't accountable to these things too. But there's something unique here that I want to call out to the men, okay? Sisters, I love you. I'll call you out next week or something like that, all right? <clears throat> passivity is a sin that all men can fall into. And if they don't fall into passivity, they can overcorrect and fall into domineering behavior, toxic mas masculinity. But the Bible calls, something, calls us men to something better something harder, more beautiful, namely to be like Jesus, who was both the lion and the lamb, both mighty and courageous against sin and abusers, but also gentle and lowly with sufferers, could weep at the loss of his friends. That's what a man is really like, like Jesus. And men, you cannot be this without the Holy Spirit. This is not something you can just try to muster and try to make yourself to become. You will fail. I fail all the time. It's a process of daily becoming more and more dependent on the Holy Spirit, beholding Jesus through word and prayer, and being humbly sharpened through healthy community. Men, are you embodying, embodying Jesus' character in our community? Are you, or are you passive, letting sin thrive in and around you? Or are you controlling and domineering, trying to make things happen in your own way and wisdom? For the married men in our church, let me speak to you. The married men, are you cultivating your wife and your family like a garden? Notice the word cultivation, not make. Cultivate. There's a tenderness to it. There's an art to it, gentleness to it. Are you cultivating your wife and your family like a garden? Is she flourishing under your care and leadership? Or is she wilting under your Passivity, wilting under your heavy hand. 
Is she wilting under the passivity of your lack of spiritual leadership that discourages and deflates her spiritual life? More and more Netflix, more and more media. Honey, one more. Let's, let's stay up for another one. Let's keep up with the Joneses. Let's renovate this. Let's put all our money in earthly things and keep up with the Joneses. Let's quench the spirit. Husbands, we are commanded, commanded to spread the glory of God throughout the world by embodying Jesus and making disciples of him. Are you calling your families to anything less? Are you calling them to anything less? Are you buying into the American dream as the great success of your family and forgetting what you've been commanded and called to? And husbands, you're called to cultivate and guard your family. Have you neglected your duty? You letting the serpent reign free in your family with different influences and your own passivity or your domineering behavior. If that's you, repent. Repent, men. Repent, husbands, and receive God's forgiveness afresh today and take up your rightful purpose in your home. Women, sisters, Wives in here, I hope you feel loved by that call. I hope you don't feel like, well, why is he just talking about the men? Yeah, you're accountable too. I hope you feel loved by that. Because you get a whole church full of men who their, their whole great purpose and longing is the glory of God and to be like Jesus, that's good for you. Whether you're single or married. Amen? Do we want that? Single women, do you want the single men to be like that? Amen? We want that. We need that. Now, what happened as a result of listening to the serpent and rejecting God's word? We land the plane here. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Though Adam and Eve were promised the world, they are rewarded with shame and darkness. Consider what it was like, just the chapter right before, Genesis 2.25. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there was a time when the men and women were naked and yet it's fine, no shame. Why? They didn't have to feel shame. They didn't do anything wrong. And the light of God's pleasure and his presence was covering, and covering them with glory. This may be hard to grasp, but I think all of us can relate. We all know what it feels like to blow it real bad and people know it. And what do we want to do? We want to shrink. We want to hide in a hole. We don't want people to see us. We feel vulnerable. We feel Exposed. We want to be invisible. Shame drives us into darkness, which ironically, what does that do? It sets us up to fall into more sin, which sets us up to have more shame. It's called a shame cycle. Instead of breaking the cycle and running to God for mercy, they hide and they make self-coverings for themselves. They take the biggest plant known in Palestine, a fig leaf, and use it to cover a makeshift clothing for them. Instead of letting God's grace cover them with his love again, they take it in their own hands. And we do the same things, don't we? We blow it. We feel the shame. We feel bad. And instead of running to God for mercy and forgiveness and being embraced by his mercy and love for us, we distance ourselves from God, his community. We try to cover ourselves with our own good deeds, put ourselves in a penalty box. Is that you this morning? Have you been in a penalty box and trying to do enough good deeds to feel good about yourself, to cover up the shame you feel, the darkness you feel? 
I have good news for all of us. I know this has been a heavy sermon. Not a lot of smiles in this room right now. I have good news for you. The good news is this, that God did not let humanity just flounder in our sin and darkness and shame. We're gonna see in the next, as we keep reading in this chapter next week, that God does what? He seeks them out. He seeks them out. But this God, the tricky thing is he's a God of justice. His justice is not flexible and bendy. He just do whatever he wants. Adam and Eve must die. They rebelled against God. They broke his command. And yet, not just our parents, all of us here, every single one of you here, every single one of us, including me, especially me, we have followed in the same footsteps a million different ways. Maybe different manifestations, but the same heart. Our way, not God's way. A heart that does not trust the loving rule of God and wants to be our own God. And yet God's grace, listen, though he's a God of justice, his grace is unfathomable. Unfathomable. I can't even say it right. It's so good. His justice cries out for judgment, yet his love cries out for mercy and forgiveness. So what could God do? This is what God could do. God could create a plan where he himself would take the punishment for us. He could step in our place, the in the place of man, in the place of punishment, and die as if he did all the wretched things you and I did. Let me share a text with you. Romans 5.18. Would you read this out loud with me? Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. Thank you, Lord. Jesus lived the life Adam and Eve should have lived. Jesus did not succumb to the serpent's temptations in the wilderness or in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus chose the will of God over his own desires. He chose and trusted God's wisdom and love, not his feelings, fear, and anguish, though real as they were. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he reversed what, G what Eve did. What does he do at that table, at that Lord's, that final supper? He takes bread. And he hands it over to his disciples who were with him. Except he isn't giving them forbidden fruit for them to be like God, but he gives them himself so that they can be right with God. Jesus reverses what Eve does. And Jesus' act on the cross satisfies the death penalty mankind deserved. Listen. Don't listen to the serpent's lie that there are no consequences, no judgment for your sin. There is. He is a liar. Judgment is real, and if, if you reject God's loving reign. So listen, if you're not sure you're at peace with God, you're not sure that you have his forgiveness, and you're right with him, you're in grave danger. But thanks be to God, he's made a way for you. And I want to pray with you this morning. If that's you, if you're not sure, you have insecurity, you're right with God, come after this gathering. I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you. But listen, more than just the cross, Jesus didn't just die for our penalty. He covers our shame. He covers our shame. Hallelujah. So that God considers us pure and beautiful as if, as if we were like Jesus. No matter what you've done, church, if you're trusting in Jesus. But even more than that, Jesus gives us the power over temptation by giving us his Holy Spirit and his word so that we would not be ignorant of the schemes, that we would have power over the strategies of Satan. 
So that over time, the Holy Spirit would renovate our hearts and increasingly stir in us love for what God loves and hate for what God hates. But even more than that, Jesus is the true and better Adam. He doesn't just passively watch while his bride is destroyed. He guarantees she will be preserved till that wedding day. And one day when he comes back, he will defeat Satan. As it is said, Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I so want my church, I want us to be free from the strategies and lies and deceptions of Satan. I know right now Satan is lying to us about God's, your character and your word. He's stirring in us suspicion. He's not for us, even though he makes us think that he's for us. Father, I ask that you'd help deliver us from these lies. Right now in this room, any lie that the enemy has planted and that we have embraced, would you just bring to, 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 the, to the front? Bring it up in our minds right now so we can give it to you and extinguish them? Deliver us, Lord. Set us free from the lies that God isn't really for our good, that he doesn't really love us, that he's stingy. He doesn't know what's best for us. All these different lies that are shoved down our throats all the time from the enemy, bring them to our minds right now and let it die. And let us replace with the good truth that you are good. You're for us. You love us. You're a trustworthy God. Your ways, your words are good and right all together. Help us delight in your ways and your word. And I pray right now that Satan would be absolutely neutered. He would be furious of what's going on in this room right now as his lies are being stripped away.